summertime, at least here in the Northern Hemisphere, and chances are that August is a holiday month, which might well see you sitting somewhere watching an exotic sunset, a glass of something suitably refreshing in your hand, and as you see that golden disk slip below the horizon, and the wonderful display of red shifting colour beginning to settle towards nightfall, you might spare a thought for the memory of Tom Gullick, who died sadly last week. Because for many of us, jetting away to our exotic location might not be happening were it not for his innovation efforts. An avid bird spotter, he held the record for the most birds, over 9,000, spotted by an individual. But he was a bit of a Don Quixote figure, not least because he took up residence in later life in La Mancha in Spain and pursued a conservationist crusade during his last years, saving at least one species of duck from extinction. But he has another claim for fame, as one of the founding fathers of the low-cost travel experience. His bird-watching abilities gave him the observational skills, leading him to spot an opportunity in classic entrepreneurial fashion, and then to go after it with a passion. He was working for a hundred-year-old firm, a firm of shipping brokers, H. Clarkson and Sons. And he was given the task one day of getting people to the city of Brussels to attend the World Fair Expo 1958. The entrepreneur in him rose to the challenge. He chartered a DC-3 aeroplane to fly from Southend Airport and arranged coaches to get people there and back, refreshments, even a tour guide, offering the entire package for six pounds. It worked well, but his interest was piqued when he found out that another entrepreneurial member of the party had seen his offer and bought a sheaf of tickets, reselling them via an advertisement placed in the London Evening Standard for eight pounds. That was the trigger for Tom Gullick. He managed to persuade his rather conservative employers to set up a travel subsidiary, and he became a pioneer of what became known as package holidays. Coming after years of post-war austerity, his offer of trips to places abroad, whether the tourist sites of Belgium or Switzerland, or the beaches of the Costa del Sol, was avidly taken up. He pitched his offer to those who previously had been unserved by the travel industry, offering experiences to those whose normal holidays might well have been spent in a beach hut in Bridlington. As he later explained in an interview, my happiest moment was standing at Rotterdam Airport at the end of the day, watching buses return from the tulip fields with a Dakota DC-3 aeroplanes lined up, waiting to take our customers home. They were so happy because they never believed they could afford to go abroad. Within a decade, Clarkson had become one of the major players in a market which was exploding with pent-up demand. They offered a wide variety of experiences, from wine tours in France to trips along the Norwegian fjords. And the sunshine holiday business was particularly popular, based on a fixed-price, all-inclusive model delivered at low cost. 
The demand far outstripped hotels, so the company had to invest, or persuade others, to invest in building new hotels to cope with it. Gullick's skills as a negotiator helped deliver this whole package. He could, for example, guarantee full hotels or full aeroplanes if the supplier was prepared to offer competitive pricing. Of course, other companies joined the party. And it wasn't just the British who were travelling. Increasingly, horizons for Europeans all over were extending. And inevitably, this brought a highly competitive edge to the market and required a business strategy based on investing in being able to deliver experiences by assembling the different elements and engineering them down into a package with a thin profit margin. He found increasing difficulty in explaining this to a company whose core business was in shipbroking operations, very different business models. And so finally, he left in 1972, retiring to Spain to begin that second career as a bird watcher and conservationist. He got out just in time. By 1974, cutthroat competition from a growing number of players, a devalued UK pound, and the emerging oil crisis, with all that pressure it put on fuel costs, forced Clarkson's into collapse, dramatically in the middle of the summer tourist season. The business model hadn't failed, but it did need developing and fast learning. All the pieces were there, interesting destinations, hotels, buses, aircraft, and so on. The difference was in the market, classically growing at the edges of an existing one. But bringing this new business model to life required reframing how both the product and the process would work. Margins were thin, so new approaches were needed to booking and operations, while delivering that package experience required a whole new profession, the tour rep, who'd need enormous versatility, dealing in everything from entertainment, health and safety, administration, currency exchange, and so on, all the while smiling for the customers. It wasn't disruptive innovation yet. What was going on at that time was learning to serve a very different market with a new experience based on lower cost. But the learning about how that model might work sowed the seeds for what later did become a revolution which has transformed the travel industry. The evidence for this is with us today. Low-cost airlines like Ryanair, Wiz or EasyJet have revolutionized the world of short-haul travel and although they faced heavy setbacks during the COVID-19 crisis, they're now returning to profitability and popularity. But the package holiday actually is not a new idea. Some hundred years previously, a certain Thomas Cook was looking for a new offering for his growing travel business. Originally a printer and a Baptist lay preacher, he'd built a business organizing day trips. His first didn't run too far, the relatively short hop from his hometown of Leicester to nearby Loughborough. But in 1841, it gave birth to his travel business. Four years later, and he'd clearly tapped into a rich potential market. His trip to the seaside at Liverpool was booked by 1,200 people, and he had to repeat it two weeks later for another 800 happy travellers began to extend his trips across the channel. By 1863, he'd seen the possibilities of offering people the opportunity to see far-off places and sites, 
like the famous Mount Rigi in Sweden, for themselves. In doing so, he pioneered what effectively became the package tour, organizing not only the travel by road, rail, boat, even mules, and the accommodation, but also by providing guides to help conduct the tour. Mind you, his tour was not for the faint-hearted. In her diaries, an intrepid young woman, Jemima Morell, described in detail a world of 4 a.m. alarm clocks, 20-mile hikes, and other challenges, not least of which was being able to dress for dinner every evening in the hotels at which she stayed. But she clearly felt it was worth the experience. As she said in her diaries, the days spent on foot or by the sides of mules afford the greatest satisfaction. It was then that, away from the life of the city, we were taken into the midst of the great wonders of nature and seemed to leave the fashion of this world at a distance. It was an entire change. The usual routine of life was gone. All memory of times and seasons faded away, and we lived only in the enjoyment of the present. Thomas Cook's ideas changed several things. From the point of view of Switzerland, it helped transform a poor rural economy into a travel destination. Today, the Swiss Alps are one of the world's most popular tourist destinations. Cook also created a system-level innovation, much as Henry Ford was to do with the motor car 50 years later. Putting together a successful package tour involves much more than simply arranging travel and tickets. Cook pioneered the complex logistics, arranged for integration of different travel and accommodation options, provided a system of coupons, the forerunner of today's traveler's checks, to help pay for goods and services, developed a network of guides and other support staff, and printed brochures, not only as sales tools, but as a way of engaging customers in imagining and dreaming about the journey they were about to embark upon. In doing so, he can rightly be considered one of the founding fathers of an industry which today is worth over $7 trillion. What he pioneered was experience innovation, not simply offering travel, but a whole new experience. In his case, it was the wonders of the grand tour brought to everyone. In Clarkson's case, it was the joys of sun-drenched beaches, endless sangria, and exotic food to try. This kind of position innovation, putting an innovation into a new market, a new context, position innovation of this kind starts with reframing the possibilities. Classic entrepreneurial territory. Tom Gullick saw an opportunity in meeting needs for a different group and packaging the experience up rather than leaving them to select their own. Travel agents were involved at the time because the infrastructure wasn't fully developed. But the later low-cost revolution saw increasing disintermediation and the emergence of platform models where you buy your travel, car hire, hotel, parking currency, anything else you might want, all of it via a one-stop online platform. But in order to meet the needs of an unserved or underserved market requires close interaction and fast learning with that market. By definition, it doesn't exist yet in a developed form, so the process is one of co-evolving, and that's going to involve a bumpy ride. The Clarkson experience was one of experimentation and building fast learning, 
from that first prototype of Expo 58 to the slick summer exodus managed in the heydays of the 1970s. This is challenging, but it also means that position innovation can provide a valuable learning laboratory for those wanting to get out of the box which serving the mainstream market can sometimes represent. A good example is the fascination and huge market potential of digital wallets and mobile money. We're still, well, at least I am, excited by the fact that we can now use our phones to pay for a whole raft of goods and services. And the potential is, of course, huge. Given an accelerating shove by COVID-19, the shift towards a cashless society has been rapid. Not for nothing is Elon Musk trying to create a new brand X. Why do I think of washing powder every time I hear that? Anyway, why is Musk trying to give the bird the bird and replace it with the X symbol? Well, it's got little to do with messaging and everything to do with trying to emulate the power of the WeChat platform in China, which is an everything app. But at its heart, it's all about mobile money. So much so that even the beggars in China have QR codes so that you can support them with a click of your phone button. So we're talking about the cutting edge of innovation, right? Not necessarily. If you live in East Africa, you might greet a lot of this with a yawn. It's nothing special or new. Because M-Pesa has been enabling this for over a decade. So much so that the mobile money app, which runs on any phone, now accounts for over 50% of gross domestic product transactions in Kenya. And it's widely used across much of Africa. But what is M-Pesa? It's essentially a simple mobile money app, which was developed originally as a joint venture between Safaricom, the Vodafone subsidiary in South Africa, and the British Department for International Development. With the support of the central bank, it was rolled out and very quickly began to take the place of cash in a society where access to banking services is very limited. What's gone on, of course, is a classic piece of position innovation, where learnings driven improvements and developments, not only to serve the new market, but in products and services and processes to enable that growth. And it's created a platform economy, bringing in shops and transport, government services, all sorts of things, all with the support of the central bank. It's a model which has grown beyond Kenya to have worldwide impact. For example, a valuable spin-off has been the use of this technology to enable more efficient aid distribution to help cope with humanitarian crises. So, position innovation matters, and it should form a key plank in our innovation strategy. It's also at the heart of the innovator's dilemma. The emergence of innovation at the fringes of your core market was the threat which was so potently identified by Clayton Christensen. How you deal with that strategic challenge is still a major question, but making sure you spot emerging position innovation early at least buys you time to think through a creative response. And for entrepreneurs looking for new opportunities, the challenge is simple. Spot a market before it exists and then grow it. Not an easy thing to do, not least when you can't analyze or run focus groups about it. But as Thomas Cook and later on Tom Gulick found out, being prepared to experiment can pay off handsomely.
which is why it might be worth raising a holiday glass in their direction to remind ourselves of the innovation challenge they've left us with. Cheers.